A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to Detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. Today we are going to be talking about that turbulent decade, the 1980s, again the end of the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher, beloved by some, hated by others. What's the reality? We've got Dominic Sandbrook talking to us, he's one of the most well-known popular historians in the UK, just from a brilliant book called Who Dares Wins, about the first few years of the Thatcher administration. We had a in really interesting time because we talked a little bit about the politics, about the history of those years. And then I tried to step back a bit and, and ask him whether the, the things that he talks about, the cultural and political history of those years, is actually what they will be truly remembered for in decades and centuries to come. It was a really fun discussion about the nature of history itself. You will be able to see Dominic Sambrook on our history channel historyhit.tv you'll be able to hear ad-free versions of all these podcasts on historyhit.tv you will be able to listen to all the podcasts from 2015 and 2016 exclusively on historyhit.tv they are not available anywhere else on planet earth head over to historyhit.tv use the code pod6 pod6 and you get six weeks for free to check it out in the meantime though everyone here is dominic sandbrook Okay, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. I've got Thank you for having me. A legend in the studio. And I'm here too. <laughs> I'm going to start with what, what's the most important decade to understanding uh, the, the politics of the now, the, of all the ones you've studied? It's a very boring answer, and I happen to have a book about it, but it's the true answer. I, I think it's probably the 80s. You think so? It's yeah. probably the 80s when I guess you and I were both. Very young, very young. I mean, almost um, not born. Right, <laughs> in your exactly. case, maybe. Um, yeah, I think it's probably the 80s. Um, the 80s, you know, it's sort of classically Thatcher's decade. Um, a huge shift economically for Britain. Um, but I think it's also, I think the key thing about it is that it was the decade, it's the period in which Britain's sense of itself changed from the sort of um, Britain rediscovered a kind of populist patriotism. And, uh, I mean, this is a, a drum that's been beaten a lot in the last two or three years, but obviously an, an identity that was not European. Um, I think it rediscovered that in the 80s. Uh, and coming so soon after having joined the European community in 1973... I think that was a big moment. I think Britain also rediscovered a kind of, um, if I say self-confidence, that makes it sound like I'm meaning that's a good thing. 
And I, I don't mean it in that way, but it did, did rediscover a kind of self-confidence and a belief that Britain was special and different and that Britain was dynamic and all these kinds of things. And, and it sort of rebounded from imperial decline. Yes. So in Found the 70s, it was all sort of, um, oh, woe is us. Uh, you know, the classic kind of James Callaghan, uh, who was prime minister at the end of the 70s, who says, you know, when I'm shaving, I, I look in the mirror and I say to myself, if I was a younger man, I'd emigrate. Um, to have your prime minister voicing those kind of sentiments is sub-ideal, I think, for any country. But nobody would have said that at the end of the 80s. I think even if people hated Thatcher and all she stood for and what she'd done to Britain, Britain was still a more dynamic, forward-thinking country. And I think once that happened, then Britain's sense of itself and its place in the world was bound to change. And European... Um, European membership had always been had always been presented to the British people and seen by them as a bit of a failure strategy. We've lost our empire, we have to find this new role and we don't like it, but we have to jump into bed with the Europeans. And I think once, particularly after the Falklands, once people started waving the flag again, then you'd get people saying, well, actually, we don't, maybe we don't need Europe. And I think that was absolutely transformative for Britain in our lifetimes. And is it coincidence then that our current crop of leaders probably came of age? They sort of... Yes. Uh, sorry, no, it's not coincidence. Yes, you're right. Um, I think our current leaders are completely different, aren't they, from the people who preceded them, who were steeped in that world of post-imperial decline, who had lived through it, who had been born in the age of empire and had seen it fall apart um, around them. If you know your John le Carré... Um, in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the the mole, I won't say who the mole is, the mole, uh, one of the things that motivates him to give all the secrets to the Russians is that he feels cheated by the loss of empire. He was bred to run the empire and it's all been taken away and there's this sense of Britain being irredeemably seedy and broken and rubbish. And... For people of the sort of Ted Heath, James Callan, Howard Wilson generation, and those just below them, those a bit younger as well, um, I think that was fundamental to their sense of British identity and Britain's destiny. The Britain's destiny was a kind of reckoning with that and an admission of it, and our future lay in accepting it and becoming, you know, a very big Belgium. <laughs> And I think for politicians who came of age in the 80s and afterwards, their sense was very different. They remembered the Falklands. They remembered Thatcher and her handbag. You know, Blair always talked about Britain being a leader and, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with the Americans, flying over to Bush's State of the Union address and accepting the congratulations of Congress and all of that kind of thing. And this sort of Churchillian rhetoric that Blair and Thatcher were both very comfortable with. So I think... Without all that, you wouldn't have. We wouldn't be where we are now. When, when you've been looking at all the, uh, modern recent uh, British history, are, are you? Do you buy into that narrative though about how the sort of swings, you know, the fifties, the seventies being a nightmare and the eighties being a rest restoration of national pride? I mean, how much do you think that is a, a, a kind of us trying to talk about Britain on the on the sort of strategic on the world stage. What, what was the experience of normal Brits? Do you think? Oh, of course, they're completely different. Yeah. Um, people's experience at any given moment is not the narrative that historians tell, is it? I mean, we we superimpose that onto the messy reality of people's lives. So, 
you know, I've written books about the 70s and 80s and whatnot, and whenever I talk about them, people often say, well, I sort of, I know what you're saying, but my life, and then they'll rattle off all the facts of their life, which was completely different. Um, so in a way, you know that you're just painting a very, very broad picture that doesn't necessarily um, match the circumstances of an individual or an individual family's day-to-day um, -day life. But I still think you can make general points. I mean, you can make an observation in the 1970s, for example, um, you have this strange paradox where most people were better off than they'd ever been. They led more affluent lives, more comfortable. They went on foreign holidays. They had central heating, all of these kinds of things. And yet at the same time, they had a, an intense sense of disappointment with um, life hadn't quite measured up to their expectations in the 50s and 60s. They felt that Britain itself was was falling behind, falling apart, more violent more divided, all of those kinds of things. I mean, again, that is a generalisation, but I think it does capture something of the spirit of the time. And writing about these periods very intimately in sort of very great detail, you do get a sense of, at a given moment, the conversation is about you know, X, Y and Z, and then almost imperceptibly, a few years later, it's about a, B, and C. It's about something different, and the obsessions are different, and the kind of flavour, I can't really put it any other way, the flavour of the national conversation feels different. I mean, as we all know from our own lifetimes, the flavour of the national conversation in 2007, let's say, was very different from 2015. Um, and it's actually charting those changes. The obsessions that people have, their anxieties will change, their fantasies will change, that's one of the interesting um, aspects of writing about the very recent past. What, um, speaking about writing about the very recent past, how do you, what are your sources? I mean, how do you go about writing about when there's a ginormous reservoir of people to yeah. talk to and newspapers? And well, first of all, I don't do people to talk to um, at all. Some people do, but I don't do it at all. I have done it for other things, and I'm just suspicious of it um, as a historical tool I, I people's recollections are generally wrong <laughs> um, and if you're talking to politicians you're obviously getting a very carefully manicured um, uh, almost too self-reflective view of the past but also if you're trying to write the history of an entire country I mean who do you talk to where do you start how are you going to select your housewife in Bolton to be representative. So I don't do that at all. Um, I use mass observation, which came in in the 1980s, after disappearing at the end of the Second World War. Um, I use newspapers a lot, um, published diaries. I mean, basically the issue is there's too, far too much stuff. Exactly. So it's simply a matter of, you know, trying to get a, what you think is a reasonable balance. Um, you know, some things are self-indulgent. There's no real... Um, should we say, ideological justification for using Kenneth Williams' diaries. But they're good fun. <laughs> and he's a very amusing, you know, spectator. So it would be mad not to. Uh, but I try to be pretty eclectic. You know, pop magazines, um, politicians' diaries. Uh, or, you know, I do a lot about sport. Um, uh, you know, I'll do sort of deep dives into things. So the Falklands War, obviously, veterans' accounts. Um, but also tons of the sort of cabinet papers uh, with the last book, you know, all basically 
Margaret Thatcher's papers have all been digitised, so there's no... I mean, you could spend your entire life sort of awash in Thatcher, which some people would really get off on, but there's a point at which you have to call a halt. But also, unlike lots of historians working in previous earlier periods, I mean, you've got, like, hard data. You've got, like, job figures on it. Yes, know. yes. I mean, is that... Is that are, you, are you part statistician? Um, I tell you what I use a lot is opinion polls. Um, the two things that people generally are get sort of cross about, they don't like me using, are newspapers and opinion polls. Generally because both of those things will um, present a picture that sometimes people don't want to hear. So people may have particularly an, an image of Britain as more progressive than it was. If you say, well, you know, at the end of the 1960s, New Society magazine did a really big survey and they asked people, what's the one thing you what are the two things you don't like about Britain in the 60s? And young and old, rich and poor, they all get the same answer. There's too many immigrants, and we don't like the abolition of the death penalty. And, um, you know, sometimes I would, I would uh, mention this in talks and stuff, and people would say, oh, that can't be right. You know, people, we weren't like that. Nobody I knew was like that. Um, and the other thing is newspapers. People say, oh, well, the newspapers are all biased, aren't they? They're just trying to brainwash people and all the rest of it. But actually, I think newspapers, particularly the letters pages, um, can often give you a really fun um, view of what people are interested in. I mean, the letters that people write to the Daily Express or something at the turn of the 1980s look in many ways absolutely demented. Um, but they're just a really fun and, um, I think, not entirely unrepresentative source. Um, so, yeah, I do use a lot of... I mean, the opinion polls, particularly where it comes to stats, because you asked about stats. I mean, where would you... Where, you know, there's no... Cut off. You could again. You could spend your life awash in facts and figures. You know, inflation, unemployment, interest rates, all of these kinds of things, and they do make a. You know, what the interest rate is, as we anyone who owns a house or has a loan will know, um, makes a huge difference to your well-being, to your sense of how the country is faring and how you're faring in it. Um, is it too soon to write history of the eighties and the nineties? The- no, um, I mean. <laughs> This is a sort of, um, you know, this is one of these things that people discuss, don't they, when they're studying historiography against their will in their second year at university, when does history start and end? Um, I think about 30 years is about right. AJP Taylor wrote about the interwar years in, I think, 1965. So similar sort of interval. I think there's just a sense after about 30 years of the dust settling a bit. Um, so writing about Thatcherism now, in the 80s now, doesn't feel... It's still more politicised than I thought it would be, um, but it doesn't feel quite as intense as it would have done 10 or 20 years ago. Um, a lot of people are dead. It makes it easier to write about them when they're dead, because um, you don't feel bad about saying what you think. Um, and there's just a sort of sense of some of those stories that have, have clearly ended, I think, when people have died. You know, you know where we know what happened to them. You know what, where it got to. You know what happened to Thatcher and the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. So you can tell the story of the eighties with a sense of where it's going, in a way that you couldn't have done in nineteen ninety five. Let's say it's weird, though, isn't it? I mean, if the twenty sixteen referendum had gone two points differently, so Remain yeah. had won. I know you'd be writing different history. I would be writing different yeah. history. You're absolutely right. So I wrote the very first book in this series that I wrote. The European issue came up because it was the late 50s, early 60s when Macmillan made the first bid to enter. And I often think, I, I've often thought about it since the 2016 referendum, that that book 
and the next book, which was about Wilson's attempt to join, again, Vito Buedigal, and the third book, which had us actually joining, that all three of those I wrote with the assumption that we would be in forever. That the, the questions that I was asking were, why didn't we join earlier? Um, what went wrong with the early applications? Uh, and then I would write about the celebrations. I, I've got, I mean, I can, you know, I can see it now. I've got the passage talking about the celebrations when we went in in 1973. It didn't occur to me to write about the people who were really down in the dumps, you know, who were cross about it. And it didn't occur to me that the question that I should be asking was, why were more people not enthused? Why were so many people so sceptical? You know, which is obviously the question that you'd ask now. But you're absolutely right. You'd only ask that question now because of that two-point difference. So it's a very good example about how... It's a very good... Just a great example of how the vagaries of, you know, sophology in the present can change the questions that you're asking about the past. So you admit, you know, that's good that you're, you're writing... This is contemporary history. It's for you. It's it's all. It's affected by your experience moving through the. Yeah, isn't that true of all history? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's yeah. absolutely true of all history. I don't yeah. think that it's more obvious for me. Yeah, but I, it happens in a more subtle way with anybody who writes about it. And, and you know, I, I see this all the time as a reviewer. So you know, I review history books for the Sunday Times, and I get to. It's a great treat because I get to read lots of stuff outside my period, and. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to the literary editor about the obsessions that people have. So basically every book we get about the Victorians now is about, you know, it's either about empire and imperial crimes or it's about people cross-dressing or it's about sort of uproarious attempts to subvert the Victorian um, stereotype. People don't write books about Victorian politics or sort of straight Victorian history. And that is, of course, you know, that's contemporary writing. It's writing about the 21st century disguised as historiography, which, in a sense, all history is. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. 
You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Totally. Um, let's, you mentioned Thatcher. She looms so large over modern British politics. Yeah. Um, is it? Is it? Po- I mean, do you? How easy was it to try and do a do a sort of dispassionate uh, judgment on Thatcher? I mean, but the myths of both the right and the left mm. are so powerful. They um, are, aren't they? I mean, I always would say to people, Thatcher's the last great man in history. She's the last great. You, that's the last bit of great man history are allowed, particularly if you're very political, um, and oddly, particularly if you're left wing and you hate Thatcher. Because if you're left-wing and you really hate her, people tend to believe that she is personally responsible for... deindustrialization. Precisely. For these forces, which palpably she's not really personally responsible for at all. Because they happened everywhere. And because they were happening already. So in in some... When I first started writing this, and it was an idea that I actually got from doing the TV series about the 80s... um, we had the idea of how could you do it with no... Could you do it with no Thatcher? Could you just take her out completely, not even mention her? What would it look like? And I thought... Obviously, I didn't do that for the book because she's such a great character. She's a great character. She's kind of Dickensian character, but... Um, it's a really interesting thought experiment. You know, write the story of Britain in the 1980s without mentioning her name or anything she did. How would... You know, how would your work on that change? And actually, once I started thinking like that then it became almost easier to put her back in as a historical actor, but one who's imprisoned by circumstance, who's, um, you know, who's not the architect of the story, but is trapped within it, who's a professional woman who has to make decisions about what she's going to wear, how she's going to look, just like any other woman in the sort of new workplace of the 1980s. And as somebody who's wrestling with a... You know, she's been dealt a set of cards and she has to play them um and you know that i mean i remember margaret thatcher when i was a child but jesus i was you know, Very six young. seven eight Hardly i mean born. it would be it would be freakish <laughs> there are a lot of such people but i wasn't one of these people who spent all my time thinking about margaret thatcher when i was young i mean i was thinking about star wars or something but not margaret thatcher so i didn't feel that i came to it with a lot of baggage and having written about, you know, the Millens and the Wilsons and so on, she was so, she was just fun to write about. She was so refreshing. She was so direct and acerbic and abrasive and, and, and at, at times sympathetic or intensely annoying. You know, she was just, she's a larger than life figure. I mean, that's, and that's a dreadful cliche. But if she was a top, if, you know, if historical characters were top Trump's cards, She'd be a good card to get. You know, there's a lot of... She's, she's, she's a technicolour character. Um, and I think doing her that way as a character rather than as a caricature was the kind of key to it. Do you think that 
so she's a great character, but did she have more agency? Was she sort of more more powerful than your Wilsons and your your Callahans and these McMillans and other other prime ministers? I mean, was 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 the did she bend the course of British history more than yes, other prime ministers? Yes, she did. Okay. She did. Um, um, you know, if you take Wilson for example, Wilson won three out of four elections that he fought. He was you know prime minister twice. He was a, a huge figure. I mean, the huge figure in the 60s and 70s. But when he left, you know, I've, I've written thousands of, probably thousands of pages about Harold Wilson. But when he left, you know, what was left? It was as though he'd never been. Um, now, with Thatcher, you really felt the imprint. I think she was just intensely forceful. Um, I think she had a very, very, uh, she was tactically far more flexible than her enthusiasts or her detractors would allow. So she was perfectly happy to do U-turns, despite the ladies not for turning stuff. But strategically, she was extremely consistent. She had a very clear vision of what sort of country she wanted to lead. Um, How to get there was a different matter. But she was... You know, she was ruthless about. She was, she was ruthlessly opportunistic, um, and absolutely unsentimental about using power, um, and about her own political survival, the survival of the Tory Party, um, and she had a kind of. I think the other thing that's really distinctive about Margaret Thatcher. I mean, obviously, there's a whole issue of her being a woman which is, I'll I'll park that for the moment. But I think the really distinctive thing is her moralism, which is utterly at odds with the kind of Macmillan, Wilson, Heath era. So she had been brought up in this intensely religious background, Methodist background, where she would go to church or to chapel sometimes three or four times a week on a Sunday. She was Sunday school and then various sort of things because her father was a lay preacher. She grew up in this atmosphere, this religious atmosphere, religious language. And when she became um, Tory leader, that was what a lot of people found both invigorating and shocking, is that she would use this language of good and evil, completely unselfconsciously and unironically. So people would interview her. I mean, the Sunday Times interviewed her once, and she, they said, why did you go into politics? And she said, well, because I believe in the conflict between good and evil, and I believe that one day good will triumph. I mean, Harold Wilson would have never said something like this. You know, you can't imagine David Cameron saying anything like this, or Boris, or, you know, I mean, even Tony Blair, who is much more religious than than most, would not have said it. Um, She believed, you know, she genuinely thought that socialism was the way of wickedness. Um, And of course, her her enthusiasts loved that, because for once, they were the goodies. (laughs) Somebody was telling them they were on the side of virtue in there. But there's one reason, I think, why the left absolutely abhorred her, was that they were used to being unchallenged on the moral high ground. And here you had a prime minister who said, actually, I'm, I'm fighting the fight of righteousness, and you are villains who are undermining, you know, all this sort of stuff. And that made her completely different from most other politicians. I mean, people in her own cabinet would kind of, you know, they, 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 they would physically recoil when she sort of embarked on these lectures. But if you see her... They've, you can see her speech notes that she would write for the party conference speeches. And she would write these huge screeds about 
um, the, the idea of individual responsibility and how that comes from God and all of this sort of stuff. And of course, her speechwriters would cut every word of it because they were just embarrassed by it and they didn't know what to do with it. But she absolutely believed it. And that made her very different from most politicians. And the, the, she allied that with two other things. One is the opportunism, the sort of ruthless tactical cunning. And the third thing, which is very telling, is the populism. She framed everything within the language of the family and the household. I know how to handle a family budget. You probably know yourself, so you know. Then she'd go on about inflation. She presented in this way, which is where being a woman came in very handy because she could play that card. Um, and that, again, was something that a lot of politicians just couldn't do. So she had all these sort of qualities, for want of a better word. Um, and she was a sort of... She was a very powerful electoral package in a way that only really, I suppose, Blair has matched since her. Um, what about when you're writing, uh, when you've been writing these histories, you know, these, these modern histories, do you, is it very, is it, is it, is it easy to get um, obsessed by the, the trees and, and ignore the wood? I mean, do, do yeah. you, because I have historians coming here and talking about demographics and climate breakdown and AI and, and do, do you also do you describe as a kind of culture? Is that is that your primary interest? Is the cultural and political history, or or are you trying to also map these kind of gigantic substructural change like tech that's going on as well? Because it's a huge task. Yeah, the truthful answer is yes. I do try to do those things, um, but it's kind of difficult in a in an eight hundred page book about three or four years. So, you know, you're trying to keep the rhythm of several different or the pace of several different stories in your mind at once. So one is the level of political froth, which as we all know is in the long run trivial. Um, and below that are the bigger things. So you mentioned tech. Um, in the most recent book, I have a chapter about computers. And a lot of people were quite surprised when I said I was going to do a whole chapter, surely a page. Um, and I'd say, no, I think this is really, I think, because I, I mean, I do think no one will care in the long run about the miners' strike, maybe not even the Falklands War. But the advent of the computer, uh, in terms of a computer as something we all use, you know, it's colossal. And I remember it happening. I remember everybody in my class, that moment when nobody had ever seen a computer, and that moment where everybody had a Commodore 64 or a Spectrum or a BBC Micro. And that, of course, is merely the, the uh, a trivial symptom of a much deeper change in the way we relate to each other and the way we work and all the rest of it so i do try to weave some of that in but of course that's a classic example of a story that hasn't ended yeah so you know it's hard to say exactly where that's going but yes um you know there is a real danger of i have an awful lot of um trees in my books because they're quite you know they're designed to be immersive uh you know the weather on a given day who was top of the first division, all of that kind of thing, and, and kind of giving you a, a building up the texture of life. But certainly, I, I sometimes think like, you you can absolutely get too close to all this stuff and you can suffer from an overload of information. And actually, that's one thing that, being not just a historian, but a newspaper columnist, um, I always think that actually a real asset for writing columns or talking about contemporary politics is is not overloading yourself with information most of which is wrong or misleading but actually shutting off from it and knowing so I don't want to sound like say knowing as little as possible 
But sometimes the more you know, the more you become absorbed by the minutiae, the more you lose sight of the bigger picture and you lose the kind of clarity of vision. So trying to keep all those, I don't know what metaphor I'm on now with clarities of vision, trees and woods and balls in the air, but trying to keep all those balls in the air is, 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 is the trick. I guess. Yeah, cause so when you're, it's, it's so interesting because you're the great expert of modern British history. You looked at how we've evolved and developed, and you just said political stuff's all froth. And I, I, I kind of agree with that as well. It just strikes yeah. me that, you know, I come from a family of political journalists who would just get obsessed by a party conference speech. Yes. And I think, did that make any difference compared to what the woman down the road was doing, which was developing a cancer drug? You know, like it, what, what has, what do you think the big, like, what have been the big things that have driven change over the period that you've studied? I mean, has it been decisions made by men and women in white? No, no. You don't think so? No, of course not. I mean, here's a way to think about it. Um, The Victorian period, right? I mentioned the Victorian period earlier. Think of the Victorian period when Britain was at the height of its international influence, when, you know, colossal change, the railways, cities, um, Dickens, you know, newspapers, steamships, all that stuff. Who cares now who was Prime Minister in 1874? Who who knows the details of Gladstone's second government? I mean, that stuff is, is, as, is no more compelling than the details of the reign of a Byzantine emperor from the 7th century or something. I mean, those things might be interesting, you know, to some people and they might enjoy it, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't have, you know, weight. It doesn't seem to have significance. And I think, you know, my, the, the funny thing about the, the, my books and the way I write is that I do give a lot of weight to all those things and I do, I enjoy the narrative, but it doesn't really matter. You know, heretical as it might sound, it didn't actually really matter that, did it matter that Margaret Thatcher won in 1979 and not Labour? Probably not. Would Britain be in a different position now? Would our lives be different? No, because as you say, the technological changes, the, the sort of deep cultural and economic shifts have nothing to do with politicians. And that's often... But we all like to collude in this fantasy. Totally. We want someone to be in charge. We want someone to be in charge. But also, I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a fine line between an, an ideology, a historical explanation, and a conspiracy theory. And we all like to believe that somebody is to blame, that somebody, yeah. you know, the, the evil Tories plotted all this and they yeah, destroyed yeah. our industry. Well, I think we want to believe that Rupert Murdoch can click his hands and make, because otherwise it's all a bit scary. It is, if precisely. No one's, if course. no one's in charge, then it's, yeah. oh my God. If, if, if JFK really was just shot by Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah. how worrying is that, that, that the world can spin because of the actions of one madman? George W. Bush, it was just a bit of a bumbling fool. There was no overarching <laughs> yeah. kind of conspiracy. Yes, there was no plan. Just a bit of an idiot. Yeah. And um, he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you sort of see this now with Cummings and Brexit. Oh, yeah. People want Cummings to be the evil genius. To be the mastermind. Even if they hate him. They want. Yes, they, they think it's, it's nice that somebody's... Yeah. I remember to know that Peter Mandelson. Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, he's the dark art. He's going to... Prince he wants of some, Darkness. Yeah, it's whatever. like, oh, he's nice. He's a dude. He's just wandering around like everyone else. I mean, I just don't... I don't yeah. see that any of these people have agency, really. It's well, the more you know about polit- politics and politicians and political history, as you do about of medieval kings or anybody else, is that they're fumbling, arguing, squabbling you know, trying to make sense of the world and, and the most successful ones are the best opportunists. Yeah. But but that's all it is. Um, and, yeah, but that's not what we want to... 
I mean, you could write history books with no people in them. And people do. Sort of guns, germs and steel and all the rest of it. It's a successful genre. I mean, it's not what I am particularly interested in. And, um, and actually the sort of human comedy, as it were. I mean, that's what often strikes me about... My books are a succession of people getting things wrong, uh, making tits of themselves in various ways, you know, political careers crashing and burning after having appeared to soar into the heavens. Um, and that's fun, because it, it, that, there's a sort of... I think there is a kind of human comedy aspect to politics, which is often what political journalists really like about it. The sort of... Um, the multiple ironies of all these people who think they're... You know, they're the big I am, as it were. And actually, they've just got feet of clay like all the rest of us. And we project onto them all this meaning. Um, but it doesn't really exist. There you go. So what's the latest book? Uh, so the latest book is called Who Dares Wins? And it's uh, Britain 1979 to 1982. And I believe available in all good bookshops. It sure is. Go and buy it, everyone. Thank you very much for coming Thank to the you, podcast. Darren. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.